0: Hey folks, and welcome to the last episode on Iran. Kind of. I promised to have it done by today, and it is. 40 pages and more of script called from the last 69 pages and 37,000 words of a massive outline. I am, though, releasing it in two parts. The total audio will be well over three hours, which is long. And what's more, my website does not play too well with files that large. So the first part is out today, and the second will follow next Monday. Along with the show I did with Rob last Thursday, that will give me a little bit of breathing room to get my giant Indochina wall map printed and some reading taken care of so that I can jumpstart the next series. I am also, as of recently, the Michigan correspondent for a progressive news startup called 50 States of Blue, which will launch at the end of this month. I've got groundwork to lay there, and with your patience on my doling this episode out over two weeks, I should be able to make a strong early showing there, too. As far as I know, my buddy Blaine is the only person who reads the show notes, but if you haven't been checking them out, I suggest that you take the time. He's got a podcast app called Pocket Casts, which makes it easy and makes them look good, and while they're not paying me, I'd suggest that you check that out, too. I put a lot of extra info in there that I can't cover even in shows this long, and this time around there's a whole supplement on the Lebanese Civil War, along with a series of maps that are going to be pretty much essential, I think, unless your spatial reasoning is off the charts, to understand what's happening in this war. I am also, over the coming weeks, going to be sort of remastering the first episodes of the series to bring their quality up to what I think I've learned to produce by now, So by December, there won't ever have been a better time to introduce SFD to your friends and family. Other than that, you know what I want. Reviews, ratings, sharing, posts, communication. I'd love for SFD to be a little bit more of a community than it is, and I'd love to talk to you all about it. For now, I'm Jonathan Coombs. We're talking about the Iran-Iraq War, and this is Safe for Democracy.
1: America is today the strongest, the most influential
0: and most productive nation in the world. ¿Para qué sirve entonces la civilización? ¿Para qué sirve la conciencia del hombre? ¿Para qué sirven las Naciones Unidas?
2: But these differences were all forgotten in one unshakable unity of determination to find a way to end war. We do not want a war. We do not now expect a war. This generation of Americans has already had enough, more than enough, of war and hate and oppression.
3: Across the world, we're hunting down the killers, and we're showing them the definition of American justice. There is a recurring temptation to feel that some spectacular and costly action could become the miraculous solution to all current difficulties.
2: We have an obligation to be of help where we can to freedom fighters and lovers of freedom and democracy from Afghanistan to Nicaragua. The
3: United States has no intention of determining the precise form of Iraq's new government. That choice belongs to the Iraqi
4: people.
2: Those who make peaceful revolution impossible will make violent revolution inevitable. We want democracy to survive for all generations to come,
0: not to become the insolvent phantom of tomorrow. Okay, so, to begin, let's go through the recap. Remember where we are and where Iran is at the end of the summer 1980. The Iranian revolution has been in power for a year and a half, and the liberal factions in the country have been losing ground the entire time while Khomeini, and especially his right-hand men, Hashemi Rafsanjani, the current Speaker of the Parliament, and Ali Khomeini, have been gaining more and more power, more, in fact, than they had originally hoped for. Despite a golden opportunity halfway through 1979 to pass a French-style liberal constitution, Iranian leftists demanded a constituent assembly to give due consideration to the country's governing document. And what they got in the end was a body dominated by clerics and a constitution that, while it was still in many senses classically liberal, turned over a huge portion of sovereign authority to the leader, for now Khomeini, and to advisory councils of clerics within the government. On top of that, the Khomeini-aligned students at the U.S. Embassy took and held their hostages, torching relations with the United States and any hopes Jimmy Carter had of re-election, especially after the disastrous failure of the Eagle Claw rescue operation. The hostages more or less took care of the ouster of Bazargan, the head of the interim government, and right now the similarly liberal Bani Sadr is the Islamic Republic's first president, along with a liberal-leaning Majlis. Tensions between Bani Sadr and Khomeini's people are already beginning to appear, and looming over everything has been the growing tensions with Saddam Hussein's Iraq. Then, right at the end of the last episode, on the 22nd of September, 1980, Saddam invaded, pushing an armored fist over the central and southern regions of the border and into Iran's vital oil-producing provinces. Khomeini's initial reactions to the invasion, at least his public ones, were almost nonchalant. After Iraq's opening bombing attacks, some of which made it as far as the airport in Tehran, Khomeini said over the radio that, quote, a thief has come, thrown a pebble and fled back to his home, unquote. But according to Michael Axworthy, who along with Scottish journalist Robert Fiske will be providing the main sources for this episode, Raf Sanjani, Bani Sadr, and Khomeini himself were all well aware of how bad their situation was. Purges of Shah supporters in the military had left the Iranian armed forces disorganized and in some places headless, and they were slow to move the bulk of their men and armor from the northern border with the Soviet Union down to the south and west. The Sepa, the Revolutionary Guards, at this time under the leadership of Mani Sadr as well, was swelling its ranks with thousands of young, idealistic Iranians, but they were untrained and entirely unequipped to deal with Saddam's largely Soviet-armed infantry and tanks. Things were so bleak at the outset that the Iranian leadership immediately began considering contingency plans, wherein the Sepa, the Revolutionary Guards, might be used to start a guerrilla war after an Iraqi victory. From Robert Fisk's book, The Great War for Civilization, quote, Saddam Hussein called it the whirlwind war. That's why the Iraqis wanted us there. They were victorious before they had won. They were celebrating before they had achieved success. We would be taken across the Iraqi border to the warfront at Basra, and so we were. In September 1980, we entered Basra at night in a fleet of Iraqi embassy cars from Kuwait City. The sky lit up by a thousand tracer shells. Jets moaned overhead, and the lights had been turned off across the city, a blackout to protect us from all of the air raids. Out of the cars, the Iraqis shouted, and we leapt from their limousines, crouched on the pavements, hands holding microphones up into the hot darkness as the frail Basra villas, illuminated by the thin moonlight around us, vibrated to the sound of anti-aircraft artillery. The tracer streaked upwards in curtains, golden lines that disappeared into the smoke drifting over the city. Sirens bawled like crazed geriatrics, and behind the din we could hear the whisper of Iranian jets. A great fire burned out of control far to the east, beyond the unseen shot al-Arab. Never again would an Arab army so welcome journalists to a battlefront, give them so much freedom, encourage them to run and take cover and advance with their soldiers. We stood on the steps of the Hamdan Hotel, watching the spray of pink and golden bullets ascending into the dark clouds that scudded across Basra. Somewhere away from the city, through the palm groves on the eastern banks of the Shat al-Arab, and all the way to the north, Saddam's army was moving eastwards through the night, into Iran, into the great deserts of Awaz, into the Kurdish mountains. The Arab journalists who had accompanied us up from Basra were ecstatic. The Iraqis would win. The Iraqis would protect the Arab world from the threat of Iran's revolution. Saddam was a strong man, a great man, a good man. They were confident of his victory even more confident, perhaps, than Saddam himself, unquote. All the same, and despite Iraqi confidence, by the 30th of September, eight days into the war, Iraqi troops had not yet captured the cities of Dezful, Awaz, Khorramshahr, or Abadan, all on or very near the border. Iranian resistance, scanty or non-existent at first, had been broadened and strengthened by the arrival of troops from the northern borders and from a national groundswell of volunteers for the Revolutionary Guard Corps, Men who had joined, like those of England and France in 1914, in a burst of national feeling, and who would be spent, like the men of England and France in 1914, 15, 16, and 17, profligately. Even at this early date, aspects of the fighting which would stay in place until the end of the war were already beginning to emerge. The Iranians were initially poor in armor because they had to move it, and later because they had difficulty resupplying it and they made up for their paucity of armament with masses of men. At 37.5 million citizens, Iran had nearly three times the population of Iraq, and while Saddam had more and better tanks, he was afraid to use them aggressively. And because the Iraqis often failed to support their armor with infantry, it remained vulnerable, though at great cost, to masses of Iranian soldiers and guards. Both the Iranians and the Iraqis were well supplied with aircraft, the Iranians by the Shah's purchases from the United States, and the Iraqis by the USSR. Side note there, a strange feature of this conflict would be both the US and the USSR supporting Saddam Hussein at the same time. War makes weird bedfellows. In any case, Saddam launched a massive air assault on the first day of the war, in the same vein as the German air attack on the Eastern Front at the beginning of Operation Barbarossa, with the same objective, the total destruction of the enemy's air capacity. Unfortunately for Saddam, his pilots were nervous and not as well-trained as long stints in French Air Force schools would have led someone to believe. They barely managed to hit any Iranian planes, and the damage they did to runways and other facilities was so light as to be repaired within the week. Iraqi pilots afraid of ground fire couldn't hold their aim, and they skedaddled too quickly after dropping their bombs to make attacks of opportunity on the way home. From Axworthy, quote, a U.S. State Department official speculated to a U.S. analyst that the Iraqis had intended only to make a demonstration. The analyst said no, the Iraqi pilots were just that bad. Iranian ground crews worked through the night preparing F-4 Phantom and older F-5 Tiger aircraft for a counterstrike the next day. About 140 planes attacked together early in the morning of 23 September, flying into Iraq at low level to avoid radar detection and hitting almost all of Iraq's airbases. The Iraqi bases were less well defended and prepared, and the Iranian strikes were more effective. Several installations were badly hit, with buildings destroyed and runways so badly cratered that they were rendered inoperable. One account suggests that the Iraqis lost 20 aircraft on the ground. Large numbers of Iraqi aircraft, as many as a half or even two-thirds of the total, were evacuated to nearby Arab countries, especially Jordan, but also Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, North Yemen, and Oman, unquote. And this gets into something that Rob and I have talked about on our joint shows, that despite that we're allies in the Middle East with Israel above all, and that almost all of the Arab states' official postures were anti-Israel, we've got most of the Arabs in our pocket also. And this war, like this year's dust-up over Qatar, was a war of the U.S.-Arab West against the Iranian East, and the rest of the Arab world, for all the little love they had for Saddam, or, officially, for the Israel-aligned United States. Towed the line. The Iranian attacks on the second and fourth days of the war on Iraqi air power were devastating. And this was the place that things were working out for Tehran. I bring all this up because I think it's interesting on that base level, but I do it also to explain a part of what would develop later in the war. The Iraqis became afraid to use their planes because the Iranians exercised such blatant superiority in the air, and so they squirreled them away in the other Gulf states. The Iranians, on the other hand, even though they were weak in terms of everything but infantry and air power, couldn't risk much use of their air force, especially their powerful American F-14s, because they couldn't replace them, and the moment they were shot down or became irreparable, Saddam would have his own planes bombing Iranian cities. It was one of many factors that led to a war that broke out more than 30 years after the Japanese surrender in 1946, being fought like it was 30 years before, in 1916 again. It was impossible for either of these countries to actually wage an air war without the industrial base to support said air war. It's part of the absurdity of the arms that we sell abroad. They can only really be used if we keep selling them. It's absurd for the buyers, anyway. Demonstrably good for business. Back to the ground war, even though the Iraqis had more tanks and more ability through the whims of the international community to replace them, Saddam and his generals had trouble putting them to use. We'll get into this more, but only just enough in depth later, but you can't just send tanks onto a battlefield without infantry, and in a modern war, you want tanks, infantry, lighter armor, air and artillery all working in tandem. The Iranians had trouble because of their military purges, and the Iraqis couldn't handle it because, it looks like, Saddam had purchased the best of weapons, but in the tradition of strong men afraid of their own militaries, not the best of leadership or of training. From Axworthy, quote, the Iran-Iraq war only lasted as long as it did because both countries could use their oil industries to fund it. Perhaps more importantly, neither regime could expect to survive politically if its oil industry or oil revenue were destroyed, because neither country could afford to lose its oil, neither could afford to lose its air force. As a result, neither could risk it by using it to full effect. The situation was a little like that between the German and British high seas fleets in the First World War to which Churchill referred when he said of Admiral Jellicoe, the guy in charge of the British high seas fleet, that he was the only man who could lose the war in an afternoon, unquote. It seems pretty clear to Axworthy, and to me and pretty much everybody else who's written about the war, that Saddam Hussein thought it was going to be a short, neat little land grab, a way to firm up his border with the Iranians, and to tuck away some territory in the process. Similar to France and Germany's perennial thoughts towards Alsace and Lorraine, But the initial thrust failed, and when the UN called for a ceasefire six days into the war, Saddam accepted, probably grateful for the excuse to quit. The Iranian leadership, on the other hand, rejected the proposal. They were doing much better than they had thought, and they saw the UN's offer as just another international trick. Saddam had unilaterally begun an illegal and aggressive war, and he had already killed thousands of Iranians. As soon as things started looking bad for him, that's the moment that the UN wanted to end the fighting, even though Iraqi troops were still sitting across the border in Iranian territory. No, they thought, and at this point, the leadership in Tehran and the people in general were more or less in lockstep. Saddam would be pushed from every inch of native soil, and what's more, be made to pay for what he'd done. Saddam had also hoped that when his armored corps moved into Iran's southwesternmost province, Khuzestan, which occupied the whole southern third of the border, that the Arabs who made up the majority of the province's population would turn on their Persian government and join up the Iraqis. Although the Arabs of Khuzestan had legitimate grievances, both with the government of the Shah and, afterwards, with the revolution, once fighting broke out, their sense of Iranian patriotism and, interestingly, Muslim sentiment against the secularized Iraqi Baathists, even though they were Sunnis to Khomeini Shiism, won out and kept them loyal to the Iranian cause. The fighting from the very first was bloodier than anything we've been used to in the United States since the Pacific Campaign in the Second World War. Khomeini called for every Iranian currently under arms to stick it out in Khuzestan, to the last man. The Iranian soldiers in Khorramshahr, one of Iran's wealthiest cities and one of its principal ports, did just that. Despite it being right on the border and one of the chief objectives of the opening stage of the invasion, Iraqi troops first reached the outskirts of the city on the 24th of October, more than a month into hostilities, and they wouldn't take the last neighborhoods until more than half a month later. 7,000 men died on both sides in the fight over the city. The Iraqis lost over 100 tanks, and some impossible to find but probably large number of civilians perished due to what would become a standard Iraqi tactic of shelling densely populated civilian areas. The fighting through to the end of the year would look a lot like this, the Iraqis making slow, grinding gains at great cost of Iranian life. Enough to enrage the Iranian people, and not nearly enough to be real headway towards winning the war. All while the Iranian military kept spooling up, the Sepah kept recruiting, and the Iranian people as a whole readied themselves not just to stem, but to turn the tide.
1: We were warned that the invasion was imminent. A source told me that he'd just been in Iraq, where he'd been meeting with Saddam Hussein and his senior Iraqi generals, and that the Iraqis were going to invade Iran. Uh, This was, of course, big news and quite an intelligence coup for us. America
3: did nothing to stop the invasion. In fact, though it had no diplomatic relations with Saddam's Iraq, it allowed help to reach him.
2: We understood that what we were telling Saudi Arabia and Jordan about our perceptions of this state of the Iranian military would be passed to Iraq. Oh, How powerful did we think their armored forces were? Could they operate their tanks? Could they operate their surface-to-air missile networks? Now, these were the types of information that we would provide to uh, our, our friends and which we expected they would pass on to Iraq.
0: Coming back to the internal and politics side of things, the ongoing hostage crisis was getting more and more untenable for the Iranians. A big old black mark on their diplomatic record, just as they were getting into a war whose result, even at that early point it was obvious, would be in part determined by how willing the West and the international community would be to supply arms to the belligerents. One major obstacle to wrapping up the crisis was already out of the way. Over the summer, somewhat on the run and despite some very late treatment from American doctors, the Shah had passed away from his long-running fight with leukemia and its complications. His return to Iran had been one of the students' major demands, and now it was necessarily moot. The Iranians likewise dropped their demands for a U.S. apology for past actions, including the coup against Mossadegh, and talks began between the Iranians and the Americans by way of the West German government. Those talks moved forward, with the Iranians looking for a commitment to staying out of internal affairs in Tehran, and the delivery of military spares bought by the Shah, or the return of the $50 million paid for them. The U.S. was alright for the first of the two, and assured the Iranians that the spares would be passed along after the hostages were returned. There was another little wrinkle to the hostage issue here at the end, known as the October Surprise. One which, while it hasn't been fully corroborated and probably never will be, was lent credence by the later Iran-Contra scandal, which we'll get to in this episode. The idea is basically that the Reagan campaign got in touch with the Iranians, promising them the undelivered arms and more, as long as they prolonged the crisis until after the election. It sounds nuts, sure, but Nixon worked to undermine the Paris peace talks with Vietnam during his own campaigns, and we've seen very recent evidence of collusion between a presidential campaign, if not yet a candidate, and foreign powers. As Axworthy writes, quote, The magnitude of the traitorous cynicism of the U.S. negotiators would be appalling, if true, but the old political question applied to murky and uncertain dealings, qui bono, or who benefits, applied in this case to just those known facts, that the Iranians obtained weapons directly, though covertly from the United States, in large quantities, from NATO stocks held in Belgium, after Reagan took office, unquote. Whether they'd worked out a deal with Reagan, They'd held on to the hostages just to spite Carter, without any interference from the Gipper. But whether that was just the way the timing worked out, the hostages finally left the country on the 20th of January 1981, after 444 days in captivity, just as Ronald Reagan was being inaugurated. In addition to the spares obtained from the Reagan administration, the Iranians received some $4 billion of the $12 billion that the Carter administration had originally frozen at the outset of the crisis with the Americans withholding funds to cover outstanding claims against the Iranian government. I mentioned this last episode, but this money we're talking about right now is the quote-unquote something-for-nothing that Donald Trump brings up in relation to the nuclear deal. As in, in return for shutting down their nuclear weapons program, the Iranians received as payment money that we had already officially agreed that we owed them almost 40 years ago. So let's get into 1981. We didn't drill down on this last time, but the Sepa, the Revolutionary Guards, were the result of the consolidation of all of the different people's militias and comité-sponsored police and paramilitaries that had sprung up in the wake of the revolution. Halfway through 1979, Khomeini knit them together into the Sepah, using it to counterbalance the traditionally conservative and monarchist military. After the passage of the new constitution, while the regular army was entrusted with the defense of the national territory, the Sepah was in charge of defending the revolution itself. Its membership was usually young and religious, and after the outbreak of war, hundreds of thousands of young Iranians, some of them literally or little more than children, found their way into the Revolutionary Guards. The Sepah would become more and more like a regular military outfit over the long years of the war, but here at the beginning its troops were barely trained and poorly armed, sometimes without any uniform but a headband to mark them out as they climbed into buses headed for the front. What they had more than anything else was enthusiasm, and that carried them in devastating lines over Iraqi troops, with casualties mounting all the time. President Bani Sadr was commander-in-chief of the military by way of the constitution, while the leader, Khomeini, was head of the Sepah, although he had ceded that authority to Bani Sadr for the time being. Bani Sadr, for his part, was caught up in conflicts between the regular army, which had been much maligned in revolutionary propaganda, and the Sepa, who were much beloved of Khomeini, the clerics, and the revolution. He worked as best he could to placate both sides, but it wouldn't be until later that military necessity and the valiant heroics of the air force made Khomeini step up to heal the divide between the Revolutionary Guard and army commanders. From Axworthy, quote, Bonnie Soder had put himself at the forefront of national resistance in the first months of the war, appearing on TV, giving interviews and publicizing his activities in a variety of innovatory ways, encouraging new efforts and discouraging defeatism and Khomeini supported him, or appeared to. In mid-October 1980, Boni Sadr was made chairman of the Supreme Defense Council, a kind of standing war room body, and at the beginning of November, Khomeini directed clerics to refrain from commenting on or interfering in military matters, unquote. On the home front, though, wider and wider cracks were opening up between the moderate liberals and the Islamic conservatives, ones that would be much more difficult to smooth over. Bani Sadr and his supporters began to line up on one side, with Prime Minister Rajai and Khomeini's party, the IRP, on the other. The MKO and the Fedayeen, meanwhile, the militant parties of the very far left, waited in the wings. Bani Sadr condemned the ongoing use of torture in prisons by the IRP-dominated justice system, and by January 1981, he was making speeches warning about the possibility of a dictatorship growing up under Khomeini. Supporters, or at least people affiliated with his side of the political divide, began writing open letters to the leader in the same way that they had to the Shah in 1977, decrying unconstitutional abuses in the courts and protesting autocratic behavior. For its part, the IRP defended Khomeini, claiming now that Bani Sadr's leadership of the military implied that he might put the army to use against the revolution. They also alleged that the military's reluctance to go on the offensive, which was in fact the result of its inability to go on the offensive, might be a sign that Bani Sadr was holding it in reserve for a potential coup. This may all be getting too much into the details for the purposes of this show, but the thing to pull out here is that you still, at this point, have a political balance at work. Bani Sadr on one side, along with some quiet support from people like Bazargan and Shariat Madari, and on the other, you have the Ayatollah, the IRP, Speaker Rafsanjani, and Prime Minister Rajai. It's clear, too, that Khomeini hadn't yet decided how dictatorial he wanted to be, or that he had decided not to be dictatorial, what with the way that he ceded control of the military to Boni Sadr. And the fact is that with a war in the background, all of this gets harder to parse, more complicated, more heightened. And it is always easier to go hard when something like that is looming over proceedings. What I want you to know, too, is that when I don't take a position on the Ayatollah, it's because I'm not necessarily sure of what I think or what I ought to think. Yes, the purges and the trials that have been going on since 1979, those are bad. Any negation of due process and equality before the law is bad. At the same time, I can see, amorally, strategically, the need to purge when you're setting up a revolutionary government in the ruins of a security state. Likewise, I'm not sure if I believe that Khomeini kept putting liberals in charge of things because he was legitimately working to share some of the power in Iran out across the political spectrum, or if he just wanted liberals to come off poorly if things went poorly. I'm willing to give him some benefit of the doubt at this point, because it seems as though, especially after the war started, that he pretty much could have done whatever he wanted to in Iran without much pushback at all. For Jimmy Carter,
2: day 444 begins just as the last two days have begun. Without sleep, exhausted, surrounded by aides in the Oval Office, President Carter is desperately trying to salvage this symbolic victory for his administration to free the 52 American hostages before Ronald Reagan takes the oath of office at noon. Shortly after 11 a.m., Peter
1: Jennings reports from Frankfurt.
2: Now an official of PARS, the official Iranian news
1: agency, has just said that the departure of the hostages is imminent. I, Ronald Reagan, do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. That I will faithfully execute the office of President
2: of the United States. 12.03. Ronald Reagan takes his oath of office. An exhausted Jimmy Carter listens. If it's possible for this diverse nation of 226 million to have unanimity on anything, perhaps the time is now to give a unanimous hallelujah. And for the reason for that, let's go immediately to Peter Jennings in Frankfurt.
1: Ted, hallelujah indeed. Bezat Nabavi, the chief Iranian negotiator, has just confirmed that the Algerian aircraft carrying the hostages have left Tehran, and so does Iran's Barabad airport tower confirming the American hostages finally are on their way. Unless there is the most ultimate manipulation, it has finally happened.
0: With Bonnie Sodder's anti-conservative speeches getting more incendiary, and with members of the IRP and their street violence division, the Hezbollah, clashing with Sadr's supporters in the cities, things were coming to a head. Khomeini decided to call a meeting in the middle of March 1981 to see if he could reconcile his politicians, one to the other. Bonnie Sodder came outnumbered, On one side of the table were all of his normal political opponents, along with Khomeini, who at this point was a high-level operator within the IRP and the Council of the Islamic Revolution. On his own side was Bazirgan and Ahmad, Khomeini's moderate son who'd been a go-between for the leader since the beginning of the revolution. Bani Sadr fought at this meeting for the rule of constitutional law, and his opponents claimed that he was difficult or impossible to work with, and that his pretensions to authority and grandeur were intolerable. They both had points, given that the courts were running amok and that Bonnie Sauter was by all accounts a pretty flamboyant character, something at least in part borne out by him making anti-Khomeini speeches at that time and in that place. The meeting broke up with Khomeini deciding that each side would cut out its personal attacks on the other, at least in public, and with an impartial three-man commission set up to monitor the media and to keep them all in line. But from Axworthy, quote, "'The settlement did not endure. The IRP chiefs had no intention of backing down, and Bonnie Sadr had no intention of dropping his confrontational line. It brought about a period of relative calm between the president and the IRP, for which ordinary people and the fighting forces were thankful. But there were clashes between the Hezbollah and the MKO in April, after Khomeini stepped up his criticism of what he called their eclecticism. In other words, their promiscuous absorption of non-Islamic, Western, and Marxist notions into their ideology." Unquote. As far as the war went, despite throwing more men and tanks into the fray over the winter and the spring, basically all of the Iraqi offensives had bogged down, and by the summer both sides had reached an uneasy, though still at war, kind of detente, with more artillery being exchanged than actual attacks. Right around this same time, as spring was rolling into summer, one of the stranger aspects of the conflict came to the fore, and that was Israel's tacit support for Iran. Like I said earlier, the Arab states were aligned with the U.S. against Iran, even though Reagan would go on to make good his U.S. commitments to provide weapons in exchange for the hostages. And while Israel was the U.S.'s staunchest ally in the region, they would go on to support Iran through the whole war, if very quietly, even after the U.S. took a more and more openly pro-Iraqi position. I say came to the fore because in June, several Israeli aircraft crossed Jordanian airspace and destroyed the Iraqi plutonium-producing nuclear reactor at Osirik. The Iranians had tried to hit it during their counter-strike bombing, just after the start of the war, but failed to destroy the site. It looks like another one of those things that might be tough to conclusively prove, but the folks I've read all believe that the Israelis were working on Iranian intelligence when they made the raid. From Axworthy, quote, it has been estimated that Israel supplied $500 million worth of weapons to Iran in the period of 1980 to 1983. The simple reason was that Israel regarded Iran as a greater threat at that time. But there was more to it than that. In the time of the Shah, Israel had seen Iran as her natural ally in the Middle East. Many senior Israeli politicians and officials, including the former and subsequent prime minister, Yitzhak Rabin, continued to take that view, despite the revolution and Khomeini's rhetoric against Israel, unquote. This was all kept pretty quiet inside of Israel, which wasn't receiving the anti-Zionist rhetoric of the Iranian revolution very well, and because Israeli troops and Iran-aligned groups in Lebanon would shortly be shooting at each other. Quiet in Iran also, where the revolution had a complex relationship with Judaism. Jews were protected, both as people of the book and by the official pronouncements of both Khomeini and the government. But as it has been all over the world since the 1940s, opposition to Israel and opposition to Jews in general weren't always cleanly separated at the street level. So Iran and Israel collaborated as far behind the scenes as they could manage.
2: TVI sends the first British film crew into Iran since the war with Iraq began. The reporter, Julian Mannion.
1: Two years after the revolution, in the middle of a desperate war for survival with Iraq, Iran's leadership is still in turmoil. Ayatollah Khomeini is the only voice with real authority. In his shadow, the country's religious and political leaders are still at each other's throats. And today, in front of his home in Tehran, Khomeini is obliged to call once again
0: for national unity. So if you folks remember from last show, as soon as the Iranians elected their first new parliament, Bani Sadr got himself into a pissing match about constitutional prerogatives with his new PM, Rajai. Basically, who was allowed to appoint whom in the new government. Bonni Sadr was only claiming authority that was lawfully his. But importantly, he was also often opposing the Ayatollah, and on issues that average Iranians didn't much care about. So whether or not he won these fights, and they may have seemed important at the time, he was eroding whatever popular support he had among the people. Anyway, on the 20th of May, 1981, two months after the March meeting, The Majlis passed a law giving the prime minister power to appoint a slew of new officials, including the head of the central bank, a power that should have belonged by right to the president, and a move that predictably enraged Bonnie Sader. Sadr had been rabble-rousing nonstop since the March meeting, where Khomeini told him to cut it out, and he only stepped up his rhetoric about Khomeini's tendencies toward autocracy after the passage of this new law. The Ayatollah responded with a speech condemning personality cults and reminding the audience that everyone in government was subject to Islamic guidance, which was seen to be a clear and direct rebuke towards Bani Sadr. Members of the IRP in parliament began to talk about impeachment proceedings, and authorities under control of the party shut down Bani Sadr's newspaper. Sadr kept publicizing his positions by way of another paper under another name, while Khomeini told the Iranian people through the radio that the president had to be subject to the other branches of government, meaning the IRP-controlled parliament and Supreme Court, or that Khomeini would remove him as he removed the Shah. Bani Sadr insisted in letters to the Ayatollah that he had to be allowed to exercise his full presidential authority without these fetters, but, according to Axworthy, quote, having received declarations of loyalty from military chiefs, Khomeini stripped Bani Sadr of his delegated powers as commander-in-chief on the 10th of June. As late as the 13th, Khomeini and Rafsanjani both were holding out for Bani Sadr to stay on as president, if only he would fall into line. But his obduracy and the prospect of an alliance between him and the MKO seems finally to have changed their minds, and on the 17th of June, Rafsanjani, as speaker of the Majlis, allowed a debate on Bani Sadr's competence for the following week." When the vote came up, preliminary to an impeachment, only three delegates spoke in Bani Sadr's defense while others talked in a roundabout way of the Hezbollahis and IRP violence in the streets. By the time of the vote, 13 members abstained, one voted against incompetence, and 177 voted for it. Axworthy thinks that, since Khomeini allowed Bonnie Sader's election after he'd already achieved his constitutional objectives, the fact is that Khomeini really had wanted to work with the new president, but only in a particular posture of obedience. Boni Sauter himself, in a later interview on this subject, said this, Quote, for the mullahs, unfortunately, public opinion did not exist. Khomeini explained his point of view to me quite clearly. He said, you were always talking about the 11 million people who voted for you, but there is no such thing as public opinion, neither in Iran nor anywhere else. It is a fabrication. It is plain to see that governments manufacture public opinion out of nothing and manipulate it at will. This theory basically implies that the people understand nothing. It is taken directly from the philosophy of Aristotle, who said that some men are born to govern, others to be governed. A few are aware, and the rest are sheep. Plato said the same thing. This was yet another source of contention between the two sides in our revolution. The mullahs concluded that my election was a mistake, since the people, by definition, know nothing." Unquote. Like with Bazargan before him, Bonnie might have been able to fight for and maintain his position, if he'd had some party to support him, both among the people and in the Majlis. But again, like Bazagan before him, he'd focused more on governance than on serious politicking, and the IRP's position in Iran was already surpassingly strong. Axworthy says of Khomeini in terms of the crisis that, quote, Whether or not he would have agreed with Bonnie Sadr's characterization of him as a kind of anti-democratic philosopher prince along the lines of Plato, Khomeini was no fool. He was aware of the dangers for the clergy in being seen to govern alone, the risk that the clergy would be discredited by the dirtiness of politics. Bonny could have been useful to him. Khomeini was reluctant in any case to see him thrown to the wolves, and there was good reason to believe that his effort to work in partnership with him, albeit with the president as very much the junior partner, was genuine." Bonny went into hiding and then flew to Paris to escape arrest. It definitely does not speak well of the regime that anyone who was facing arrest would have found it more attractive to leave the country than to stand trial, even and especially an impeached president. Sadr briefly struck up a resistance partnership from abroad with the MKO, but that collapsed, and he went on to live, apparently pretty peacefully, in Paris up to the present day. (laughs)
4: Death to Bani Sader is the cry in Tehran, death to the second Shah. Two and a half years after the overthrow of the Shah, Iranians are calling for the blood of one of his leading opponents. Abu Hassan Bani Sadr was one of the architects of the Iranian revolution. For 17 months he was Iran's president. Now he is in hiding from the mobs. Chanting goes on outside, the Iranian parliament, the Majlis, debates Bani Sadr's fate. The Majlis has been a center of power opposing the president. Bani Sadr had few supporters in this forum. Instead, Muslim fundamentalists attacked his Western ideas and lack of commitment to doctrinaire Islam. The Majlis is dominated by the Islamic Republican Party, it is the political arm of the mullahs, the religious leaders. To them, Bani Sadr stood in the way of the dream of turning Iran into a theocratic, Muslim state. Now they have won the power struggle, and they are calling for Bani Sadr's impeachment and trial.
0: So before I go on here, I need to say a few words about the side of Iranian domestic politics that we've only touched on very briefly over the last four episodes or so. And that's the far left, namely the Fedayeen and the MKO. Like we saw way back, both of these groups came out of an abortive guerrilla movement in the late 60s and early 1970s. It was a revolutionary time the world over. The Vietnamese had launched Tet and shown the world that they could stand up to the United States. Castro was defiant in Cuba, and Che had been talking and acting for years towards sparking similar socialist rebellions in Latin America and Africa. Mao's China was a world power, despite having come from a peasant revolution, and had won itself an equal footing with the USSR. They were heady times, and for all that the guerrillas in Iran were stamped out by the Shah, the ideologies they'd formulated—a more extreme and more Marxist twist on the Shi'ite socialism of Ali Shariati— and the structures of the group they'd formed lived on. We mentioned two episodes ago that they went through a resurgence after 1977, forming part of the liberal side of the resistance movement in the streets, And two years later, they were well organized and well enough armed to lend assistance to the rebel airmen at the Doshan Tapa Air Force Base in February 1979. After the revolution came to power, the forces on the Islamic right consolidated, while the secular right, i.e. the military, and the left tended to fragment. The only place from which Bazargan and Bani Sadr took more flack than Khomeini's people in the IRP was from their own left flanks. The MKO and the Fedayeen were just incensed by the creeping forces of Islamism in the government and constitution, but by both moderate leaders' middle-class bourgeois attitudes in leading a revolution that they felt should have been thoroughly socialist and working class. We can lay a crude comparison on the situation if we look through the lens of current politics right here in the USA. The Islamic right was like the Republican Party, but less crazy than the GOP, more focused on fact and with a program much more honest and more popular with the mass of the people. The comparison, I'm saying, is an insult to the IRP and a compliment to the GOP. But the salient point is that the IRP closed ranks. It knew who the political enemy was at this point, and that infighting would do it no good. Bazirgan and Bonnie Soder were like the establishment wing of the Democratic Party. They were highly educated, wanted to tack a moderate course, and when things were going good, especially before they came to office, they were popular and able to turn out the base. But really, they had no rigorous party structure, which meant that when things weren't going well, like at the end of Bazargan's and Bonnie Satter's terms, they had no base to rally or to turn to. The MKO and the Fedayeen and other smaller elements were more like the progressive left, or maybe better, the Berniecrats here in the U.S., although much more trained in terms of organization and real Marxism. That is, they didn't seem to be able to capture much of any governmental institution, but they were fired up. They organized among the working classes, and they had, although this falls apart a bit because the Berniecrats don't, a committed party behind them, one that could and would turn out to contest the streets against the Hezbollahis of the IRP. Political violence in Iran had been growing ever more pronounced ever since Doshan tapa At first, it was largely separatist movements in the provinces, fighting either for independence or more autonomy and government moves to quell those dust-ups were another one of the reasons, that I hadn't yet mentioned, for the Iranian armed forces being so out of place at the beginning of the war with Iraq. Latterly, though, especially after the passage of the Constitution, the far left had been returning to its guerrilla roots and executing attacks against not just the Hezbollahis, but the government itself. By the time of Bani Sadr's fall from grace, a couple of my sources have reported that the MKO was actively taking funds from the nominally socialist Baathist regime in Iraq, in order to better oppose the regime in Tehran. And if that sounds out of line, well, wait for this. From Fisk's book, quote, The Iranians, like Saddam, had to fight internal as well as external enemies during the war, knowing that groups like the MKO had the support of the Iraqi regime. The strange death of Iranian Defense Minister Mustafa Shamran on the battlefront, for example, has never been fully explained. But there could be no doubt what happened when, Just before 9 p.m. on 28 June 1981, a 60-pound bomb exploded at a meeting of the ruling IRP in Tehran, tearing apart 71 party members as they were listening to a speech by the Ayatollah Mohammed Beheshti, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Secretary of the Council of the Islamic Revolution, head of the IRP, and a potential successor to Khomeini. When the bomb destroyed the iron beams of the building and 40-centimeter-thick columns were pulverized by the blast, the roof thundered down on the victims. Among them were four cabinet ministers, six deputy ministers, and 27 members of parliament." Devastating as that strike was, the MKO would keep up the pressure in what might have seemed to them like an attempt to retake the revolution at a stroke. A month later, on the 5th of August, the MKO assassinated another IRP leader in parliament. At the end of August, they used another bomb to kill both former Prime Minister Rajai, who had just taken over the presidency in Bonnie Sauder's absence, and the Prime Minister who had replaced him. They followed up by killing the Prosecutor General five days into September and Khomeini's proconsul in Tabriz and Ayatollah six days after that. It's hard to know exactly what the MKO was hoping for here. We know that violence in the cities had become more generalized, and according to Abrahamian, that it had taken on the flavor of almost a civil war. It's probably not too far out there to guess that the MKO and its allies shared the hopes of most socialist or Marxist guerrillas. That after this show of force, the people would rise up and join them. You could see too that with the removal of Bani Sadr, they could see both an opportunity in the chaos at the top, and the potential for their enemies on the right to grab hold of even greater power and control. But Iran was embroiled in a great patriotic war and the ongoing internal conflicts against the Kurds in the north and the Azeris in Azerbaijan left the government that emerged out of the summer assassination spree little willing to be lenient, while the nature of the war with Iraq kept the people focused on the western border rather than another revolution. From Fisk again, quote, The regime hit back with ferocious repression. Schoolchildren and students figured prominently among the 60 executions a day. Just a note, and this is from me, That's because with the closure of the universities that we talked about last episode, the MKO had moved into high schools and even secondary schools and organized heavily there. One estimate, that 10,000 subjects were hanged or shot, would equal the number of Iranians killed in the first six months of the war with Iraq. Things were looking bleak for the Iranian regime and for the people midway through 1981. But some sort of stability was coming, despite a financial crisis brought on by war spending and a fall in oil revenue as OPEC loosened supply into the new decade. Khomeini, who we've been mentioning as a Khomeini confidant and IRP insider for forever, finally took office, being elected to the presidency in a landslide. If he was on the right, then Mir Hussein Mosavi, the new prime minister, was on the left. This is one of those strange aspects of the Iranian revolution and that country's ongoing politics that's hard for us to grasp. I've been referring up to this point to the Islamists on the right and the classical liberals on the left, and that's generally the way it broke out. But while Bazargan and Bani Sadr were pretty conservative in their concern for Iran's traditional middle classes, like the bazaaris and the clergy, there were parts of the IRP that took Shiism's concern for the poor seriously enough to be what in other circumstances would have been called socialist. So Mousavi, even though he came up entirely through the IRP, was a former artist and architect and would use his position to push basically socialist policies in favor of the Iranian poor. And now that all the major players at the top of the government were members of the IRP, both Rafsanjani, still Speaker of the Parliament, and Khomeini himself found themselves occupying the middle ground, moderating between Mousavi and Khomeini. Those four parties would remain in control until the end of the war, and some of them after it. So hold on to those names. Khomeini, leader. Mousavi, prime minister. Khomeini, president. And Rafsanjani, speaker of parliament. The battle would go on with the MKO for years, and just to give some perspective to balance Fisks, Amnesty International gave a figure just under 3,000 for executions in that first year, although Amnesty has high enough standards for proof that their estimates sometimes come in low. The MKO themselves said that they suffered 7,746 deaths from executions, torture, and street battles between the bombings in 1981 and September of 1983 when the armed struggle largely died out. The government had gained the upper hand as early as the spring of the next year though, 1982, largely by using the massive forces of the Sepah to root out the leftists. Most Iranians, rather than rising up to fight against the IRP, had elected Khomeini by over 90% despite, or maybe because of, MKO attempts to sabotage the elections. And by the next year, they were sick and tired and terrified of what they'd come to see as a distraction from the real threat, which was Iraq. As the tide turned against the MKO, the IRP took another opportunity to stamp out leftist opposition. A Soviet defector passed evidence that the Tuda, the Iranian Communist Party, had been making mostly innocuous but suspicious contacts with the Soviets, and the British, happy to torpedo Soviet espionage efforts in Tehran, passed the evidence to the Iranians. With those links in hand, however much or little innocent, the IRP moved to proscribe the party, and like the National Front before it, the Tudah was wiped out in Iran for the last time.
3: The Iranians are showing some signs of resistance, resistance on the battlefield, but above all resistance to the very idea of a ceasefire. A dawn raid by Iranian jets, signalling that Iraq does not have it all its own way in this war. The target is the big refinery on the outskirts of Baghdad. This has become an economic war, but even in this sort of warfare, civilians get hurt, almost 100 killed in the past week. But the raids bring only temporary terror to Baghdad. Otherwise, it seems a city peculiarly content to be at war, at least while its own side is winning. Only the foreigners have fled, thousands of them drawn to Iraq for the money, now deciding that a shooting war is no part of the deal. And then there's the chance to join in the war games, to cake your bus with mud so that a telltale glint from burnished metal doesn't betray your position to Iranian warplanes, even if the nearest you get to the front is a city bus stop. Baghdad seems positively to revel in the war. It's almost as if war is a natural state in the bazaars of Baghdad. Certainly the inconvenience of this conflict has so far proved minimal. There's no petrol shortage and the price is fixed at an envy-making 14 pence a gallon. So vast are their reserves that Iraqis say that the last two barrels of oil in the world will be theirs. A world away from the rigid orthodoxy of the Ayatollahs in Iran, a generation of modern Baghdad women shun the veil. Strolling unconcernedly in city streets in western clothes, there's a way of life to be defended as well as a country and a regime against the incursions of Iran's puritanical revolution. And so far, the
0: defense of those modern ideals has proceeded well. All right, back to the war, which we left off at the end of 1980 some more detailed explanation of the layout of what's going on might be in order. I'm not sure it was necessary for the initial stuff that we covered, but things are soon going to settle down into a long front, and it would be good for all of us to have some idea of what that looked like. I'll have maps up as always in the show notes, but basically, Iran and Iraq share a border that's almost a thousand miles long. It begins on the Persian Gulf in the southeast, that is the bottom right, and it follows the Shat al-Arab northwest, that is, up and to the left, leaving the water eventually, but continuing in that diagonal line until it hits Turkey in the northwest. Almost the entire border lies in the foothills of the Zagros Mountains, which follow the same top left to bottom right sweep just on the Iranian, or eastern, or rightward side of the border. The northern third of that border is part of Kurdistan, that region shared by Iraq, Turkey, and Iran, in which ethnic Kurds live and carve out varying degrees of autonomy from those three countries. Most of the fighting here during this war was done through Iranian and Iraqi-sponsored Kurdish militias. The middle third of the border is occupied on the Iranian side by another ethnic group that you don't need to remember, and the initial Iraqi invasion in November 1980 pushed across and to the base of the mountains, not more in any place than about 20 miles from the border. The southern third of this diagonal was occupied on the Iranian side by the Arabs of Khuzestan, the province that made up pretty much all of the bottom right third of the border. This was the place where the Iraqis hoped to make their largest gains. The population was Arab and not Persian, after all, and this third contained the Shat al-Arab, both countries' main oil outlet into the Persian Gulf, as well as many of their major oil processing facilities, like the Iranian island city of Abadan, which we heard about so many shows ago. Now this is going to be a little hard to follow, so check the maps if you can. At the very south of this bottom right third of the border was the peninsula of Fau, which commanded the exit of the Shat al-Arab into the Gulf. In the middle of the stream of the Shat was Abadan, and just to the north of that, on the Iranian side, barely inside the border, was the city of Khorramshahr, which we heard about earlier in this show, a city that Saddam took in the second month of the war, and which has been in Iraqi hands since then. Just to the northwest of Khorramshahr, so to the left and up, by about 20 miles and just on the other side of the border was the Iraqi city of Basra, one of that country's major cities and one which commanded the highways both to the Shat, where Iraq normally exported oil, and also to Kuwait, where it would begin exporting oil during the war. Basra, because of that placement, was very important. Between Basra on the left and Khorramshahr down and to the right was Fish Lake, a massive artificial pond that Saddam had dug at the cost of a billion dollars, and which he'd filled with both farmed fish and anti-infantry traps like barbed wire and landmines, in the hopes that it would defend Basra in the event of attacks coming from the area around Qoramshar. The shot passes between those two cities, and keeps going northwest up and to the left before it turns all the way to the west and leaves the border. Towards the northern end of the shot and this bottom third of the border are the Majnoon, The Islands of Madness, islands that Iraq raised up out of a large swampy area and on which they built large oil processing facilities, the same as Abaddon on the Iranian side. Those islands and the marshes that they were a part of served as another natural defense. That's a lot to take in, so check the notes because there are maps of the area and maps with pullouts of this particular bottom third, but the important bit is this. While in the northern two-thirds of the border area, the Iraqis held on to most of the largely empty territory they'd captured at the outset for the length of the war, this bottom third was hotly contested, with occasional lulls for the entire eight years. In the period we've already covered, first it was the Iraqis charging in armored companies into Iranian territory. And since then, it's been the Iranians slowly trying to drive back towards Khorramshahr and the Shat al-Arab. The Iraqis' high-water mark in this southern third was the city of Dezful, nestled in the mountains at the northern extremity of the bottom third, about 40 miles inside the border, and the approaches to Awaz, the capital of Khuzestan, also about 40 miles in. Iran never lost Abadan, which controlled the shot and its lower reaches, so all of the largest and most contested gains were contained within this pocket, between the borders and the mountains, about 150 miles north to south, and 30 to 40 miles across, measuring from the border to their point of farthest conquest. Hundreds of thousands of men were fighting over a rectangle just larger than Rhode Island and just smaller than Delaware, something that you could walk across in one long day. Most of these Iraqi gains, moreover, had been made by the end of 1980, and from then on until the summer of 1982, the Iranians were grinding them back. The bulk of the Iranian forces, especially at the outset, were made up of Sepah volunteers, And their poor training and Tehran's inability to equip them meant that they had a hard time attacking Iraqi soldiers dug in with tanks and artillery. But by November 1981, they'd lit on the appropriate tactic. And that was the human wave. We have an impression of that term in the U.S., one that leaves us with visions of lines of men charging across open fields, allowing themselves to be gunned down so that somebody behind them might take the objective. Something totally inhuman and inhumane. That's not entirely wrong, but the wave part of human wave isn't about throwing waves of cannon fodder at the enemy, but instead about using a large light infantry force's ability to move to its advantage. This is something that, if Americans are familiar with it, they'll be familiar because of Korea. Yes, the North Koreans threw large numbers of people at American positions, and when they did it in daylight, there was often an incredible slaughter. But the wave, when best implemented, took place at night. Korean troops tried to move around and past fixed, heavily defended U.S. positions and to isolate them, like a wave moving past high ground. With the troops cut off, the Koreans could then, with much less danger to themselves, slowly squeeze the American outputs into surrender or destruction. And this is exactly what the Sepa were doing to the Iraqis. Moving in great numbers of small teams to penetrate, surround, and move beyond the Iraqis better armed but also less mobile positions. If everything went right, the Iraqis would spook and retreat and the sepah could cut them to pieces from behind as the Iranian regular army moved up in the front. It was a strategy that did result in huge loss of life for the Iranians and especially the Revolutionary Guards. But from the command perspective, when you've got men to spend and they take tanks and artillery pieces and territory when you spend them, spending them begins to look like the right thing to do. Actually, it takes pains to point out at this point too that the Western vision of these young Sepa recruits is off-base. I don't know that we think about them all that much anymore, but coverage at the time was of mullahs haranguing these groups of Sepa volunteers with religious rhetoric, and of the young men and boys chanting religious slogans as they headed to the front, with the sometimes implicit and often explicit opinion of Western journalists being that these were religious fanatics, brainwashed into throwing their lives away in hopeless charges. But as Axworthy writes, that footage also showed, quote, "...scared young men preparing for the fighting with determination despite their fear. They were rather like the young men of Kitchener's army preparing for similar infantry attacks against prepared defenses on the Somme in 1916 or elsewhere, with much the same patriotism and commitment to their comrades, and encouraged to volunteer by much the same wish for adventure." They were exploited in much the same way by their governments and generals, because governments and generals need naive young men and boys to fight for them. Older men tend to be more cautious. One boy interviewed at the time said, It was a game for us. We did not understand the words patriotism or martyrdom, or at least I did not. It was just an exciting game and a chance to prove to your friends that you'd grown up and were no longer a child. But we were really only children. He was asked by the same aid worker who interviewed him whether it was right for Iran to use such young boys in the war. And he said, I am not sure, but it was difficult to stop them. In any way, the boys who attacked the Iraqis were a very important weapon for the army, because they had no fear. We captured many positions from the Iraqis because they became afraid when they saw young boys running towards them shouting and screaming. Imagine how you would feel. Lots of boys were killed, but by that stage you were running and couldn't stop. So you just carried on until you were shot yourself or reached the lines, unquote, and unquote The reckless expenditure of youth wasn't the only thing about the fighting that began to resemble the Western Front in the 19-teens. Saddam has, or I guess had never been known for his scruples or his compunctions about cruelty or international opinion. And on the 13th of January, 1981, long before the first human wave, but just as the tide began to turn... Iraqi forces first deployed chemical weapons, killing seven young Iranians. The Iraqis were using mustard gas, produced in a factory built with help from the Italians, and supplied in part by the Dutch and the French. Mustard gas is a vesicant, a blistering agent, which at first leaves no symptoms, meaning that victims often expose themselves to high levels of the agent without knowing it. While within 24 hours, massive pus-filled blisters burst out on the skin, the eyes redden and ooze, the lungs blister and fill with liquid, And for those who survived the initial onslaught, usually with years of therapy, the chemical is both mutagenic and carcinogenic, and survivors confront rare and virulent cancers. Later, the Iraqis would develop the ability to produce tabun and VX gases, maybe even more terrible than mustard, likewise with the help of western businesses and governments. The Iranians would go on to record 11 chemical attacks in 1982, 31 in 1983. And the usage would go up as Saddam grew more and more desperate to stave off the masses of Iranian infantry, who were, especially at this early point, totally unequipped to defend themselves and their bodies from gases and nerve agents. And yet, as Robert Fisk reports, quote, The world did not react. Not since the gas attacks of the 1914-1918 war had chemical weapons been used on such a scale. Yet so great was the fear and loathing of Iran, so total the loyalty of the Arabs to Saddam, so absolute their support for him in preventing the spread of Khomeini's revolution, that they were silent. The first reports of Saddam's use of gas were never printed in the Arab press. In Europe and America, they were regarded as little more than Iranian propaganda, and America's response was minimal. It was 1985 before the New York Times reported that, quote, U.S. intelligence analysts have concluded that Iraq used chemical weapons in repelling Iran's latest offensive, unquote. True to that paper's gutless style, even this report had to be attributed to those favorite sources of all American reporters, administration officials, and not the Iranians who had been reporting the attacks to the UN since the very beginning, unquote and unquote. Most of 1981 was passed in a stalemate, but with the Iranian commanders getting a better handle on how to use their more lightly armed but more mobile and more numerous forces, Iranian counterattacks and gains began to pile up late into the year and on into 1982, A good example was the Battle of Tariq al-Quds in November 1981, when Iranian forces stealthily constructed an operable 14-kilometer road hidden by sand dunes that penetrated Iraqi lines and launched their attack not from the front or the sides, but from directly behind their opponents, throwing them into total disarray, despite the Iraqis' overwhelming armored superiority. The real turnaround came in March and April of 1982, with Operation Victory, renamed Operation Obvious Victory afterwards by Iranian troops. On the 22nd of March, 1982, the Iranians landed troops behind Iraqi lines in Chinook helicopters just south of Desful and near the town of Shush, so at the northeastern end of the southern third of the border. With troops in the rear disrupting the Iraqis, Iran then launched an armored assault and continued with wave after wave of Sepah fighters, these in broad daylight and perilously exposed to Iraqi artillery and small arms fire. Iraqi attempts to mount armored counterattacks got torn apart by a rare, full throated usage of Iranian air power. And by the time Saddam sounded the retreat, 30,000 Iranians, almost entirely Revolutionary Guards, had been killed or wounded. The Iraqis had lost 25,000 casualties, along with as many as 20,000 troops encircled or captured. The Iraqis also lost over 500 tanks to the Iranians' 200, and thousands of vehicles and pieces of ordnance besides. After that, the continued Iranian offensives in March and April began rolling up the Iraqi forces left flank, pushing them all the way back to Shar and closing the entire pocket by the time they retook that city on the 22nd of May, 1982. Almost two years had gone by, but the Iraqis had been expelled from nearly every inch of important territory that they'd taken in the South. It wasn't exactly a happy victory or one likely to incline the Iranian people or leadership to peace. They had lost tens of thousands of men and women soldiers and civilians. And in the retreat, the Iraqis had adopted a scorched earth policy, leveling literally every single building in entire cities, like Hawaiza, were doing their very best to reach that point, like they had in Khorramshahr. Saddam gave the final order to pull all of his troops back to the border on the 20th of June, 1982. And the Iranian regime was confronted with a choice, seek peace or no. At the Beheshtizara
1: Cemetery, families mourn the war dead that now number more than 100,000. Men who have carried out their promises to die for Khomeini. As an army helicopter drops flowers on the martyr's tombs, the revolution's supporters remember the heroes of Islam. For these people, the holy book is far more important than the international trade in oil. It is now five years since a medieval priesthood took over in Tehran. And still, the message of struggle is the same. The mullahs are calling for more volunteers for a new final offensive against Iraq, which could set even more tankers burning in the Gulf. The men and boys who have responded, wear headbands that say simply, yes to Khomeini. It means they have promised their lives to the revolution.
4: Ali Ali!
1: From the celebrations in the cemetery, these men will go straight to the front. Their leaders say the fighting must go on and blame the conspiracies of Western countries for the escalation in the Gulf.
2: You are providing
1: the wood for this fire yourself and you are being burned in it yourself. Uh, There's a kind of justice in your view. Oh no, it's not justice. You are doing a lot more damage to, the, to this region than to the West. It is true that you are losing some uh, shipment of oil or it becoming delayed or the prices get a little higher there. But here we are losing our lives.
0: My personal vote at this point would have been peace but I can recognize that there was a legitimate conflict at work as far especially as a fired up revolutionary regime went. Although they'd been taking heavy losses, the ilan of the Sepah and their recent successes made it seem as though Iran might reasonably push into Iraq, might reasonably free Shiite Iraqis from their often oppressive Sunni Ba'athist government, and maybe even take the holy cities of Najaf and Karbala, now that Saddam had pushed the opportunity onto them. That might sound mercenary or opportunist, but the other thing to remember is that Saddam's intransigent, as far as treaties and agreements went, was already well known. There was no guarantee that a peace would hold without destroying some of his war-making capability. And moreover, little chance that Saddam would pay reparations after destroying some of Iran's most productive regions. If Iran wanted either security or some form of recompense for the two years of hell they'd been through, they would have to fight and win it. So the Iranian leadership, Khomeini, Khomeini, Rafsanjani, Musavi, and the generals, had some stuff to chew over. From they quote, In these discussions, initially at least, it seems Khomeini himself did not want to pursue the war further into Iraq. Again, rather contrary to the impression many have of him as an autocrat and a dominant personality, he did not always feel the need to assert his own line. Often, and especially on what he regarded as questions with a significant technical element, he was content to ask the opinions of others and reach a collective decision. At an earlier point, he had urged clerics not to interfere in the conduct of the war, He seems to have been reluctant to direct military decisions on his own judgment alone, That's something that Saddam was not afraid of, and to which some attribute some of his forces more colossal mistakes in these first few years of the war. In any case, Khomeini argued in these discussions that turning the tables and putting Iranians onto Iraqi soil would turn the Middle East, the larger Arab world, and even Iraqi Shiites against Iran, and those were well-founded fears. It looks as though Rafsanjani, too, was against continuation of the war at this point, and that the main supporters were SEPA and military commanders, who were convinced that they could score a total victory over Iraq, if only given the chance, and they won over the civilian leadership. These meetings took place throughout June 1982, and while they did decide to continue, Khomeini tried to take a compromise position. He asked his commanders if they could continue the war without invading Iraq, They told him that, although that might be possible, allowing the Iraqi commanders to understand that the border was uncrossable would allow them to retreat to redoubts on their side with impunity, and that unless their fortifications and bases were reduced by aggression, they would be able to maintain themselves in a state of perpetual readiness for further action and invasions. And so the decision was made not just to continue, but to invade, with the explicit objective of removing Saddam from power. It was an understandable goal, a just goal, and maybe even a good one, but one that the Iranians would find it difficult to achieve. Now defending, rather than trying to win territory, the Iraqi forces began to construct defenses in depth, with two or three lines of trenches, wire entanglements, mines, tanks dug into the sand, and pre-targeted artillery and mortar batteries, all of which the Iranians had to face with basically the same resources as before, lots of men, and even less air support. Operation Ramadan, launched in July 1982, moved towards Basra and the highways feeding the Gulf and Kuwait. Iraq used gas to break up the attacks, and over the three weeks of the operation, this first operation invading Iraq, the Iranian forces lost upwards of a thousand men killed, wounded, or captured every single day. From Axworthy, quote, Operation Ramadan established a pattern for much of the war, Saddam favored a defensive posture for the Iraqi forces, partly because he wanted to avoid heavy casualties that might have rekindled dissent among his Shia troops. He was no longer seeking to force the Iranians into surrender or peace through offensive operations. His aim was rather merely to survive and to wear down the enemy by attrition. He relied on well-prepared defenses, backed up by armored formations to nip off any breakthroughs the Iranians might make. The Iranians relied on masses of enthusiastic infantry to make breakthroughs, which they often did, but lacking adequate artillery or tank support, they suffered heavy casualties and were often unable to hold the ground taken against counterattacks. The impasse and the superiority of the defensive again paralleled the First World War on the Western Front. Since 1918, military tactics and technology had evolved to break the grip of the defensive principle and reestablish offensive mobile warfare, primarily through the use of massed tank formations and ground attack strikes by aircraft. But both Iran and Iraq, for different reasons, were reluctant or unable to use those options, at least not to their full decisive potential. The outcome was a dreadful, drawn-out war of terrible conditions, terrible waste of human life, and a terrible, crippled failure to win decisive results." Saddam at this point also began to retaliate against Iranian civilians directly. I've talked a little bit about just war theory before, and if previous Iraqi tactics of shelling civilian areas sit somewhere on the line between justifiable and indefensible, after he was put on to the defensive, Saddam went straight for war crime territory, instituting terror bombings of civilian centers and launching medium-range SCUD missiles into cities all over the western part of Iran.
3: Saddam had chemical weapons, and he used them.
2: It's a very hard balance. They're using chemical weapons, so you want them to stop using the chemical weapons. At the same time, you don't want to see Iran win the war.
0: Returning to domestic politics for a moment, there's in general less to say at this point. The IRP was finally firmly in control. The MKO, the Kurds, and every other regional armed opposition group was on the run, and the virtual triumvirate of Mousavi, Khamenei, and Rafsanjani was running the country, while Khomeini looked on from above. They'd stabilized things so much that by December 1982, Khomeini felt comfortable relinquishing his extra-governmental control of the comité, the extra-judicial courts, and all the little organizations and foundations that he'd set up while consolidating power. He put together the ones that he could and transferred authority to the state, surrendering everything but his considerable constitutional powers, and more importantly, regularizing justice and administration under law for, really, the first time. From Axworthy, quote, some Iranians, both within Iran and in exile, were doubtful about the decree, suspecting that it might be a ruse to give dissenters a false sense of security and to draw back exiles so that they could be arrested. But Khomeini followed up with measures to ensure that the decree was enforced. Former revolutionary prosecutors were dismissed on the grounds of abuse of power. Committees were set up to hear grievances, along with a new headquarters for the implementation of the imam's decree. Intrusive and aggressive vetting for government job applications was curtailed. The aim was to reassure middle-class Iranians and to invite some of them who had left to return to Iran and to help the war effort. It was successful in restoring a more relaxed, normal atmosphere, but relatively few of those who had emigrated did return." So all of this looks pretty masterful to me, and I'm saying that in as detached and disinterested a sense as you'll hear from me on this program. I recognize right and wrong, whoever's doing it, but at least for this show, My hackles get up highest when the US is involved and when moral issues are clear cut, pretty understandably. At this point, the Iranian revolution's under its own steam and as bad as it is for them to be murdering people and doing show trials and persecuting internal groups with paramilitaries like the Sepah, to get all that under control in three years with a massive invasion going on, and to begin after that period to consolidate a relatively peaceful post-revolutionary regime which follows the same constitution you wrote in the post-revolutionary period, That's just way better than almost anybody's done it in the human history of revolution. The other thing to mention is that there was already developing in this period, a dynamic that would continue to the present day in Iranian politics. The Majlis, despite conservative-aligned councils of clerics vetting candidates, was consistently more liberal on the capitalism-to-socialism divide than the presidency was, meaning Khomeini. The Majlis approved plans for a real land reform program, and by now we should know more or less what that means here on SFD, But the Bazaari and landowning classes, arranged behind Khamenei, managed to hold it off until much later in the war. The Iranian state likewise ended up owning a huge proportion of the country's industry, something that looks pretty socialist, having had to take it over in the interest of the war effort, especially at the outset when much of the moneyed classes were fleeing the country and leaving their factories behind. The last thing to note before we return to the war is Hussein Ali Montazeri, a senior cleric and one of the guys who'd been pivotal in shaping and passing the new constitution. Montessori was right up Ali Shariati's kind of liberation theology, Shiism Ali, except that he was just a little bit stronger on the concept of the jurist guardianship. That might have been what originally recommended Montessori to Khomeini, who began making noises about appointing Montessori as his successor, finally making that official in 1985. It's pretty much the only thing I can think of, because Montazeri had no cult of personality on his own, the way that Shariat Madari did, for example, and he was much more liberal than the other top members of the regime. He was, for the whole of the 1980s and beyond, one of or the most prominent voice in Iran, decrying the extrajudicial killings, the harshness of various periods of repression, the restrictions on speech, the suppression of women, and pretty much every other theme that a far-left Westerner would be concerned about. The one other thing to note about Montazeri was he was instrumental in setting up the Hezbollah that you have heard of, the one that operated in Lebanon alongside other pro-Iranian militias in the midst of that civil war. I'm going to talk about it slightly more later in this episode, but if you're interested in that conflict, it's going to be up in the show notes, and I'll have a primer there for people who are looking to learn more about it.
2: Iraq's forces were led personally by President Saddam Hussein, a strong-willed intransigent man whose lack of military training made him a careless planner. He entered the war with no clear idea how to end it, consistently overestimated the abilities of his troops, and responded to setbacks by executing generals who retreated. With supply lines badly overstretched, partly the result of unclear war aims and strategy, the Iraqi leader, Saddam Hussein, announced a voluntary withdrawal from all captured territory. In the event, and just as in Kuwait more recently, the withdrawal was not complete. Ironically, Saddam Hussein was sanctioning retreat, the very manoeuvre for which he had already executed three generals. Iraq's aim of undermining Iran's Islamic Revolution had more than failed. Instead, successful Iranian resistance, then expulsion of the invaders, had cemented it.
0: Coming back to the war again, despite small gains, we're pretty much going to be looking at a nearly static front in that lower third of the border that we discussed for the next six years or so, until 1988. I don't want to, and I am not going to, try to chronicle the week-by-week battles of the period. There is a very anti-Iranian book called The Iran-Iraq War, A Military History, by a Frenchman that will do that in minute detail if you want it. What I want to do instead is to paint the broad strokes of what's going on, and to illustrate them, if I can manage it, with a few different battles or actions. Iranian offensives, after they'd made the choice to continue in the summer of 1982, bogged down almost immediately. For the most part, they were attacking across open desert, and without any need to maneuver, the Iraqis began to build systems of defense very much like those on the Western Front, which, when combined with modern weaponry, became almost impossible to breach. The Iraqis likewise secured arms pipelines through the French, their long-term allies, and began receiving tanks and better aircraft and anti-aircraft weaponry. The Iranians, on the other hand, had to put together a domestic arms industry capable of producing Soviet-pattern weapons like the AK-47 and the RPG we're so familiar with. The Iranian invasion of Iraqi territory did indeed mobilize the Arab world the way that Khomeini had feared, and it began funding and supplying the Iraqi war effort. The first truly large attempt to cross the border took place in February 1983, fully seven months after the decision to continue the war. This was Operation Fajr, or Dawn. 50,000 Iranians would push out of Dezful at the north of the southern third of the border and attempt to cut off the Baghdad-Basra highway the ground at this part of the border was more into the foothills, forested, broken, and cut up by rivers. Despite the size of the attack, it stalled out in the face of Iraq's new Soviet armor and French warplanes and helicopters, with Iranian forces digging in short of their objectives with great loss of life. From Axworthy, quote, on 14 February, Rafsanjani doggedly declared that Operation Fajr would continue. In fact, over the following years, there would be operations Fajr 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9 in various locations along the front, another echo of First World War battles, where the tactical stalemate persisted through the First to the Fifth Battles of Ypres and the First to the Twelfth Battles of the Isanzo, Iranian forces made some significant gains in the area of the Hawiza Marshes, due north of Basra, and just north of where the Shat al-Arab emerges from the Euphrates, turning to the left, about halfway between Desfil and Basra, to the north and south. In any case, these marshes sat right on the line, and the westernmost edge of them came perilously close to the Basra Highway. After the continual failures of the Fajr operations, the Iranians headed for these marshes with the idea that the broken, swampy terrain and the foliage would protect their troops from aircraft and artillery. Initial efforts bogged down, but once the Sepah had learned to maneuver small boats in amphibious landings, the Iranians managed to push the Iraqis out of the marshes and off of the Majnoon Islands, the islands of madness that the Iraqis, in better times, had built up out of the marshes to host their oil production. As Fisk writes it, quote, Baghdad's response was as successful as it was devastatingly cruel. Because he was one of the only journalists to witness the result, the account of what happened next belongs to Mohammed Salam a journalist that I knew while working in Iraq at the time. now he quotes Salam. There had been a major battle at Azair, Sada, and Baida in the Hawaiza marshes. The Iraqi commander was Major General Hisham Saba al-Fakri. He got the Iranians into a pocket in the marshes. Then the Iraqis built a big dam to the east of them to build up the water. It was still early 1984. Al-Fakri brought huge tanker trucks down and pumped fuel into the marshland, and then fired incendiary shells into the water and started the biggest fire I have ever seen. He burned and killed everything, the entire environment. When the fire was out, he brought electrical generators and put huge cables into the marsh waters and electrified everything so that there was no source of life left in that place. Gutted bodies were floating everywhere. Even women and children were among them. Marsh people, people who knew what a toad was, people who'd lived among ducks and buffaloes and fished with spears, this civilization was being wiped out, unquote, and unquote. The Iranians were for a long period pushed back to Majnoon Island, and the entire operation, at the cost of 20,000 killed and 20,000 wounded, along with four and 6,000 on the Iraqi side, came to nothing. I spent a while in past episodes on the global arms trade, and this is where it comes in here, because while the Shah and the Ba'athist leaders of Iraq had both made profligate purchases of Western and Soviet weapons and vehicles, neither country was set up to supply a war or to service the machinery that they bought before it started. Iran developed a domestic arms industry and some of what they needed to keep their planes and helicopters in the air, while Iraq largely spent its domestic energy on chemical and biological weapons with Western help. Everything else they used to fight had to come from abroad, funded by oil money. What seems like most of the developed world, especially those countries that had been developed in Asia, sent weapons to both sides, but the preponderance went to Iraq. In part, that was because the West as a whole had vilified the Iranian Revolution, and this supported the probably more objectionable by any standard Saddam Hussein. On the Soviet side, they'd had long-term arms sales going with Iraq beforehand, and while they did sell weapons to Tehran as well, the crackdown on the Tuta and Khomeini's condemnation of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan on Iran's other border dried up that well pretty good. Most of the supply that Iran did manage to obtain came by way of China and North Korea, which didn't seem to have any vested interest in who won this war. While the Soviet Union, France, and China together sent 90% of the armament purchased by Baghdad during the war, with a great majority of high-tech equipment coming from France. From Fisk again, quote, "'Often the motives behind the various deals were mixed, not necessarily expressing a desire for one side to prosper more than the other. The arms deals were lucrative, provided hard currency to make balance of payment statistics look healthier, and were used to support defense industries that were in danger of becoming unviable." That's something I mentioned, with the help of Emma Rothschild at the New York Review of Books a few shows back, that arms sales abroad are the way that we in the West now subsidize our arms industries, Instead of shouldering the burden of having the captive arms manufacturers that we value so highly, we export war instead. Fisk continues, quote, as a display of cynicism, of irresponsibility, and of the failure of the international system to resolve conflict, the war set a depressing precedent. For many Iranians, the experience reinforced the belief that Iran could depend only on her own resources, and that fine words in international institutions counted for little, unquote. As far as the money for those purchases, it came on both sides from oil sales, and in Iraq's case from $40 billion of loans from the other Arab Gulf states, and from some $35 billion from the West, including the United States. We all know, or we should all know, that after the war, Saddam used the chemical weapons he'd been testing, on the Sepa against his own Kurdish population. But he had been, and was enacting policies of indiscriminate killing among restive provinces in his own country, all through his entire time as dictator, even before the war. But neither the domestic killings nor the use of gas in the war elicited any real response from the West. From Fisk again, quote, U.S. export credits and chemicals and helicopters, French jets and German gas and British military hardware poured into Iraq for 15 years. Iraq was already using gas to kill thousands of Iranian soldiers when Donald Rumsfeld made his notorious 1983 visit to Baghdad to shake Saddam's hand and to ask him for permission to reopen the U.S. Embassy. So for all these years, until his invasion of Kuwait in 1990, we in the West tolerated Saddam's cruelty, his oppression and torture, his war crimes and mass murder. After all, we had helped to create him. The CIA gave the locations of communist cadres to the first Ba'athist government, information that was used to arrest, torture, and execute hundreds of Iraqi men. And the closer Saddam came to war with Iran the greater his fear of his own Shia population, the more we helped him. In the pageant of hate figures that Western governments and journalists have helped to stage in the Middle East, people by Nasser, Gaddafi, Abul Nidal, and at one point Yasser Arafat, Ayatollah Khomeini was our boogeyman of the early 1980s, the troublesome priest who wanted to Islamicize the world, whose stated intention was to spread his revolution. Saddam, far from being the dictator he was, thus became, on the Associated Press newswires, for example, a quote unquote strongman. He was our bastion, and the Arab world's bastion, against Islamic extremism, unquote. U.S. policy was apparently to maintain a balance of power in the region not through aggressive peace negotiations, but by funding Iraq and allowing both nations to bleed themselves dry at incredible cost in human life. To that end, the U.S. began passing satellite intelligence to Baghdad as early as 1983 in order to help the Iraqis better target Iranian infantry with airstrikes, artillery, and, well known even at the time to US agents, chemical weapons. The US likewise, while it stayed away from obvious arms sales, passed Iraq dual-use technology credits, which allowed Saddam to purchase stuff that was ostensibly destined for fertilizer production, but which he used exclusively in the production of chemical weapons, a fact of which American planners were also well aware. One last long excerpt here from Fisk's book, The Great War for Civilization. It begins with him quoting his Arab journalist friend, Mohammed Salam again, quote, I was invited with the Yugoslav Tanjug news agency to go down to Basra where there had been a major offensive by the Iranians. The third army corps under major general Maher Abdul Rashid was faced by this huge attack, totally overwhelming. So the only way of handling it was by mass killing. Rashid had crushed the Iranian offensive. There had been no flooding, no fire, no electricity. I wandered around the desert where all this had happened, and we came across hundreds and hundreds of dead Iranians. Literally thousands of them. All dead. They were still holding the rifles. Just think, thousands of them dead in their trenches, all still holding the Kalashnikovs. They had their little sacks of food supplies still on their backs. All the Iranians carried these little sacks of food. There were no bullet holes, no wounds. They were just dead. We started counting. We walked miles and miles in this fucking desert, just counting. We got to 700 and got muddled and had to start counting again. All the dead Iranians had blood on their mouths and their beards, and their pants below the waist were all wet. They had all urinated in their pants. The Iraqis had used for the first time a combination of nerve gas and mustard gas. The nerve gas would paralyze their bodies, so they would all piss their pants, and the mustard gas would drown them in their own lungs. That's why they all spat blood. But what I saw was a killing machine. Zoran and I, in the end, we thought we had seen about 4,700 Iranian bodies. You know, the things that happened in that war. You would need centuries to write about it. Every evening at 6 p.m., the Iraqis would broadcast their official war communique for the day. I remember word for word what it said in early 1985. The waves of insects are attacking the eastern gates of the Arab nation, but we have the pesticides to wipe them out, So here Fisk continues in his own voice. So where did the quote-unquote pesticides come from? Partly from Germany, of course. But on the 25th of May, 1994, the Committee on Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs of the U.S. Senate produced a report. United States Chemical and Biological Warfare, Related Dual-Use Exports to Iraq, and Their Possible Impact on the Health Consequences of the Gulf War. The quote-unquote Gulf War referred to the 1991 War and Liberation of Kuwait, but its investigations went all the way back to the Iran-Iraq War. The committee's report informed the U.S. Congress about government-approved shipments of biological agents sent by American companies to Iraq since 1985. These included Bacillus anthracis, which produces anthrax, Clostridium botulinum, Histoplasm capsulatum, Clostridium perfringens, and Escherichia coli, or E. coli. The same report stated that, quote, The United States provided the government of Iraq with dual-use license materials, which assisted in the development of Iraqi chemical, biological, and missile systems programs, including chemical warfare agent production facility plant and technical drawings, provided as pesticide production facility plans, chemical warhead filling equipment, and more, unquote. This is still Fisk, by the way. And I know this quote is long, but it was too good to leave it out, and it's too much in the first person for me to have paraphrased it in my own words. Anyway, continuing now with a story from Fisk about a time he visited a ward in Iran. The pain is physically in the ward as the doctor takes me round bed after bed of blistered young men, their strangely contorted bodies swathed in yellow bandages. The blisters sometimes cover their bodies. They're yellow and pink, horribly soft and sometimes as large as basketballs often breeding new bubbles of fragile, wobbling skin on top of them. In bed 16, I come across a doctor who was also a patient, a 34-year-old dermatologist from Tabriz called Hassan Sinafa, who was working in a military hospital near the Shat al-Arab on 13th January, when a gas shell burst only 20 meters from him. I can tell he must have been wearing his gas mask at the time because it has left an area of unblemished skin tissue around his eyes and mouth, producing a cynical dark line around his forehead and cheeks. There was nothing I could do, he says slowly, dosed in morphine. I had my anti-gas clothes on, but the shell was too close for them to protect me. I felt the burns and I knew what was happening. He smiles. He had been brought home safely to Tehran, but it was two days before he gave the doctor's permission to telephone his wife, at home in Tabriz with his 20-month-old daughter. What did he say when she arrived at his hospital bed and saw him? I ask. She has not come, he replies. I told her not to. I don't want her or our baby seeing me like this. Throughout all these years, the Americans also continued to supply the Iraqis with battlefield intelligence so that they could prepare themselves to the mass Iranian attacks and defend themselves, as the U.S. government knew, with poison gas. More than 60 officers of the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency were secretly providing members of the Iraqi general staff with detailed information on Iranian deployments, tactical planning, and bomb damage assessments, That U.S. support and provision of battlefield intelligence lasted to the end of the war. When the Iraqis retook the Fou Peninsula late in the war with a massive use of chemical weapons, something we'll get to later, a U.S. defense intelligence officer named Rick Francona toured the field with the Iraqi military and reported back on the effects of the weapons in the battle. When asked about it by the New York Times, the senior defense intelligence officer they interviewed, Colonel Walter Lang, told them that in terms of official U.S. policy that, quote, The use of gas on the battlefield by the Iraqis was not a matter of deep strategic concern." War is an ugly business, guys. Even at its best and cleanest, it's the mass murder of men by men. At its worst, it holds within it every other sin that man's privy to. We've made this past century a few faltering steps towards improving war. The use of indiscriminate drones, though, Cluster munitions, mines, napalm, white phosphorus, all of that goes on. But even as far back as the end of the First World War, we as a world managed to come to two definite conclusions. The first, that the primary responsibility of the community of nations is the mitigation of war. To avoid it where it threatens and to hasten its end when it begins. The second, that despite the horrors of nearly every weapon deployed in the Great War, There was just one so evil as to never again be used on the battlefield, and that was gas. There will always be secrecy and manipulation in diplomacy. Different people want different things, and when cultures and politics as disparate and as opposed as ours and Iran's come into conflict, problems are tough to avoid. And that embassies are sacrosanct is the oldest of international laws. And the hostage taking was more than a misstep for Tehran. But it must be said that Tehran, after too long a wait, returned them. One would hope, and though I don't hope anymore, at least I wish, that in response to an affront like that, an affront like the hostage taking, we, supposedly the most enlightened nation on earth, would stand on the best principles of the international institutions that we had the strongest hand in founding. You can't pin the war on us. Saddam would have done as he willed, but that we encouraged him at the outset, that we worked to demonize the victims of an aggressive war, that we helped to perpetuate rather than to end a conflict that would take more than a million lives, that had a strong civilian element, that we used it as a furnace to fuel our own armed industries, and most of all, that we aided, abetted, and supplied Saddam's use of the most reviled of all weapons, nerve and mustard gases. That was the abdication of every one of the values and responsibilities that we'd claimed to have adopted since our emergence onto the world stage. If the Iran-Iraq war was a test, we failed it for eight solid years. And that is the end of part one of this last episode in our series on Iran. We've covered a lot of ground together, from the ancient kings of kings to the new Qajar shah Shahs, from Britain's first missteps in Iran to the United States' massive blunder in 1953. Before the end, we'll bring this story up to the present day, but we'll have to wait one more week to finally close this circle. I produce SFD in every facet you could possibly imagine, but I couldn't do it without you folks listening, and especially without everyone who's been good enough to support me on Patreon. The votes there are in, by the way, and I'll be releasing the news shows to $1 supporters on a delay. So if you've got a spare 100 cents per month, it might be worth sending them my way. Very special thanks in Patreon terms to V this month, he or she knows why, and to Mike Escobar, our newest patron. Check out the site, guys. Find me on Twitter. Engage with what we're doing here. And for the next nine months, at least, we can make it the best thing going. I'll see you all in a week, but for now, I'm Jonathan Coombs, and this is Safe for Democracy.
5: Bent double, like old beggars under sacks. not need, coughing like hags, we cursed through sludge. Till on the haunting flares we turned our backs, and towards our distant rest began to trudge. Men marched asleep. sleep. Many had lost their boots but limped on, bloodshot. All went lame, all blind, drunk with fatigue. Death even to the hoots of disappointed shells that dropped behind. Gas, gas, quick boys, an ecstasy of fumbling, fitting the clumsy helmets just in time. But someone still was yelling out and stumbling and floundering like a man in fire or lime, dim, through the misty panes and thick green light, as under a green sea I saw him drowning. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If in some smothering dreams, you too could pace behind the wagon that we flung him in and watch the white eyes writhing in his face, his hanging face like a Devils sick of sin, if you could hear at every jolt the blood come gargling from the froth-corrupted lungs, obscene as cancer, bitter as the cud of vile, incurable sores on innocent tongues. My friend, you would not tell with such high zest to children, ardent for some desperate glory, the old lie, dolce et decorum est pro patria mori.